I thought so. You guys hate liver, and I used to hate liver, but I love liver. Zachary wore corduroy pants that winter because they were softer than anything else. Bigger and bigger and bigger until... It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and it's such a pleasure for me to be with you. And of course, we're not talking about news stories when we say stories here on the apple seed. We're talking about tall tales and fairy tales and folk tales and personal and family tales to lift your spirits and warm your heart and give flight to your imagination. A little of all of that coming up this hour as we'll bring you a piece from the Story Crafters, the wonderful storytelling duo of Barry Marshall and Jerry Burns, Ph.D. Two peas in a pod, those storytellers, and they're going to be telling a story called Two Peas in a Pod. And you're going to hear from the storyteller Donna Ingham, the wonderful Texas teller with a story called Meandering Melon from a collection called Tall Tales and Outright Lies. But first, we're going to hear a story from Joel Ben Izzy. Now, if you've ever learned to like something that you thought you'd never like, if you've ever heard anybody say you don't know if you like it, if you've never tried it, then this story is really going to resonate with you. It's a story, I'll just give you the title and let your imagination run wild. The story is called How I Learned to love liver. Joel Ben Izzy will give us the rest of it here on the Apple Seed. I got some stories to tell you today, but before I do, I want to ask you a question. What food is there that you hate? That you cannot stand? Yeah, what do you hate? Brussels sprouts. Every kid I've ever met hates Brussels sprouts. It's Brussels sprouts and lima beans. It makes me think that naming a vegetable after a city is not a good idea. What do you hate? Cooked cucumbers. Cooked cucumbers. Who cooks cucumbers? What do you, what do you hate? Um, pumpkin. Pumpkin. You hate pumpkin? Even pumpkin pie? No, not pumpkin pie. Pumpkin except pumpkin pie. Tell me what you hate. Lasagna. Lasagna. You hate lasagna? Mm. How about you? What do you hate? Green peas. Green peas. There are some foods I hate you haven't mentioned yet. Mushrooms. Cannot eat mushrooms. Another one is, my parents, when I was a kid, they used to eat tongue. I cannot, I cannot even imagine eating tongue because I don't want to taste anything that is tasting me at the same time. But let me ask you this question. How do you guys feel about liver? I thought so. You guys hate liver, and I used to hate liver, but I love liver. I mean, I love liver. And this is the story of how I came to love liver. It began when I was a kid, about seven years old. It was a dark day in my youth. I wasn't feeling so well. I was kind of pale, and my mom said, Joel, you'll need to go to the doctor. I said, okay. And I went to the doctor, and the doctor examined me up and down, took my temperature, looked at me, and said to my mom, Ma'am, your son has iron-poor blood. He needs more iron in his diet. I think he needs to eat some liver. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I said, Doctor, what are you talking about? I don't like liver. No, son. Your mom will fry it up with some onions, and it'll be delicious, I'm sure. 
Well, that's what he said. That was very easy for him to say. But for me, that meant eating liver. And on the way home, we drove past the butcher shop, and my mom went in and got some liver. She went all the way past the normal-looking meats and stuff to the last tray where there's that red, slimy liver. And he fished it out for her and put it in a bag, wrapped it up, and took it home. And she said, Joel, it'll be just like the doctor said. I'll fry it up with onions, and it'll be delicious. She fried it up with onions, and it was still liver. It looked horrible. And I couldn't eat it. It looked like, like a dried piece of dead meat, which is what it was, but it was still too... I couldn't, I couldn't eat. And, and my parents weren't usually very pushy, but they said, it's the doctor's orders. The doctor said you had to eat liver, so we'll fix it another way tomorrow and you'll like it. They fixed it another way. I didn't like it. And they tried again and again, and finally I just refused to eat it. I would not eat liver because it was disgusting. My mom worked so hard. She went out and found all new ways to cook liver. She got a book, 50 Ways to Love Your Liver. I don't know if you've heard of it before. There was a song, 50 Ways to Love Your Liver. It was horrible. She tried baking it, boiling it, frying it. You guys ever seen chopped liver? Sometimes people chop up liver and spread it on stuff at bar mitzvahs. Yuck! Oh, I could not stand what she did. Then she tried blending it up. There was a liver malted you could make where you blend up liver and put it in a malted. It was horrible. Day after day, I refused to eat liver, and my parents made a thing of it. They thought I needed to learn some discipline. So finally, they said, look, if you don't eat liver, you're not going to eat dinner at all. I did not eat dinner at all. For three days, I was starving. They were trying to prove their point. Finally, thankfully, one night, I came for dinner and there was normal food. We had chicken tacos with no liver in them. I looked, no liver there, no liver hidden. I was delighted, and I was starved, so I ate it, and it was really very good. I ate that whole meal. It was delicious. We even had dessert, my favorite chocolate pudding. Chocolate pudding came up to me, and I looked at the pudding. I was just about to eat it, and I saw that it wiggled kind of funny. It wasn't chocolate pudding at all. It was liver, disguised as chocolate pudding. That was it. I lost it. I went nuts. I threw a tantrum. My family knows that when I throw a tantrum, it's dangerous. I started screaming, kicking things, pushing the chair over, yelling, throwing stuff. My family cleared out of the room because they knew that it was dangerous to be around when I threw a tantrum. I got so mad that I started biting things. Everyone in the room was gone. There was nothing to bite, and all I could do was reach down and bite that liver. And it was good. It was really good. No, it was delicious. And it slithered down in one gulp. Oh, man, it was excellent. I couldn't believe how good it was. I asked, have we got any more? Well, sure, we had more. My parents had been to the store and had bought all kinds of liver. We had a refrigerator full of it, and I just ate liver after liver after liver. I had everything we had, and I said, I want more liver, more liver. Great. The answer to their prayers after that, I love liver. And when my mom asked the next day, she said, what do you want for breakfast? I said, I want liver, just a big piece of liver, fried up for breakfast, had liver for breakfast. She said, how about for lunch in your school, peanut butter and jelly? I said, no, I want a liver sandwich. Easy to make. You take a slice of bread, piece of liver, slice of bread, liver sandwich. Brought it in my lunch to school. I got home that day. She said, how did you like your liver sandwich? I said, it was good, but you know what? It didn't have enough liver. This time, leave off the bread. So you have a slice of liver on the top, liver on the bottom, and liver in the middle. Liver 
was delicious, and I would eat it chopped, and I would eat it fried, baked, and boiled. I would eat it on a boat. I would eat it with a goat. I would eat it in the rain. I would eat it on the train. I loved liver. It was the best thing. Sometimes I could get my mom to make liver surprise. You know what liver surprise is? It's where you have a big pile of liver, and there's all this liver, and you eat it, and when you get to the middle, you know what there is? More liver. It was my favorite. Dessert, liver. Breakfast, liver. I couldn't get enough liver, and things began to get a little out of hand. I started to bring liver from school. I started to borrow money from other kids to buy liver. On the way back home, go by the butcher shop and stop right there. Say, could I have some liver, please? I was the only kid in my school who went and bought liver. He gave it to me at a discount. I got lots of liver, and it was good. And then finally, finally things got out of hand, and my parents said, Joel, it's too much liver. You're, you're starting to look kind of red. <laughs> you've got to stop it. I said, no, I love liver. They said, you've got to cut back. We're going to make your liver sandwiches with just a piece of liver in the middle and bread on top and bottom. I said, bread? Ew, yuck. No, I couldn't stand it. I didn't want bread. I wanted liver. And we don't want you going after school to buy liver at the butcher shop anymore. That has to stop. They began to cut back on it. But I couldn't stop, you see. I needed more liver. And I remember one Monday afternoon, it was a cloudy afternoon, walking home past the butcher shop, waiting to buy my liver, and it was closed. It was closed, but all the meat was right there in the trays. And I could see that liver practically calling out to me, Joel, come eat some liver. I wanted my liver. I needed my liver. I don't know what got into me. I took a rock, and I threw it. The window shattered. The alarm went off. I didn't care. By the time the cops got there, I had downed three pieces of liver, and I was working on the rest of the tray, and it was delicious. And with liver dripping down my face, they dragged me off to juvenile hall. And that began my life of crime. And I will not ever forget that first night in juvenile hall. Walked into the kitchen meanest-looking kids all around. I was the only liver thief among them. These kids were big. They were tough. They were in for crimes much more serious than liver. And it was around dinner time. And as I sat down, afraid of all these kids, I heard this horrible groan. And I looked, and what did I see? But right in the middle of the dining hall, on a huge tray, was liver. Liver for everybody. Liver and onions. And with liver and onions, you don't have to eat the onions. You can just eat the liver. Oh, man, it was delicious. I was in heaven. But after a time, they said, this is too much. No more liver. And they put me in a special group. And once in that group, I had to realize that I was powerless over liver. And they even taught me that there were things in this world that were more important than liver. I've come to a point where I can accept that. But what that meant is that I cannot eat liver anymore. So if I go to a bar mitzvah, not even a little bit, not even a little pate on a cracker. Nope, I cannot even do a little bit. You know why? Because I love liver and I cannot get enough. And that is the story of how I learned to love liver.
Joel Ben Izzy with a story called How I Learned to Love Liver. There's a lot more coming up this hour. We're going to hear stories from the story crafters. You'll hear from Donna Ingham coming up right here on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. A moment ago, a story called How I Learned to Love Liver from Joel Ben Izzy. You're going to hear it from the story crafters, Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall, coming up in just a few minutes. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes open a door to stories that you can tell to the people that you love, here's a memory of mine about a neighborhood cat, a cat named Duber. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. We don't currently own a cat. But there is, right now, a cat that's very much a part of our lives. We discovered him a year ago on our front porch. He looked a little lost, so we let him in the front door, checked his very clearly marked collar tag for a phone number, found one, called the cat's owner, and discovered that the cat belonged to our next-door neighbors. The cat is mostly black, with a white belly and white four socks and a white muzzle. His name is Duber. We dig Duber, and because our neighbors know we dig Duber, they're not too fussy about keeping him from playing in our yard. We often go outside to find Duber walking the top of the fence around the yard or sitting on our front porch or chasing butterflies among the dandelions around the garden. It's a pretty idyllic life for a cat around here. Yeah, Duber is pretty good, and we like him. Problem is, we like our son Noah, too. Now, to clarify, Noah is not a problem. Noah likes Duber, and Duber likes Noah. The problem is that Noah comes with a companion, his dog, a big black Labrador border collie mix named Fish. And the truth is, Fish likes Duber, too. And that's the problem. Noah comes over for dinner, and Fish runs around in the yard, which is exactly what she's supposed to do. But Duber is out there, too, just about as often as Fish is. And, well, Fish likes Duber, chasing ensues. And the other night, Noah and Fish came over for dinner, and Fish headed out into the yard to run around, and almost immediately, there's Duber. And in a flash, Fish is after him, and Duber is up a tree, 20 feet up that slender but sturdy little stand of trees out by the driveway. A little black ball up there, doing his best to look nonchalant, his white paws tucked under his body as he rests now in the fork of a branch, safe from fish for sure, but, well, I don't exactly understand the evolutionary wisdom of cats who can escape up trees but can't get back down them. I just don't get it. You know, he'll come down, says my wife. Don't worry about him. So we eat dinner together, the family, and after dinner, I check out there again. Fish is safely inside the house by now, but Duber is still a little black knot sitting in his fork. He'll come down says my wife. Before sunset, I go out again. I remember seeing Steve Martin get a cat down from a tree by opening a can of tuna in the movie Roxanne. And I don't have any tuna, but I've got half a chicken taquito in my hand, and it's all dubers. I set it down at the base of the tree. 
At dusk, it's still there, and so is Duber up in the top of that tree. It's growing darker now, and it's also raining. He'll come down, says my wife. Don't worry about him. But by now, I am worrying about him a little bit. Duber is sitting up there, and neither rain nor chicken taquito on the ground at the base of the tree is making him show any inclination at all to come down, which tells me that he can't get down, which has me worried. But my wife says, Sam, have you ever seen a cat dead in a tree because it couldn't get down? Well, she has me there. Truth is, I have never seen any such thing. And it's compelling, but still, I worry. I go back inside, and I worry a bit more. And then I hear a sound outside, and I follow the sound, and there in the dark is Noah. He's out there with Stacy, his girlfriend, and she's laughing as he climbs the tree. Six feet up, nine feet up, fifteen feet up, and Duber, who has until this moment been stoically resting, pricks up his ears and looks up, looks around. He's not sure what he thinks about Noah coming to get him, but, well, where's he going to go? And Noah is now not just eight feet away, not three feet, he's right there right up there with Duber, and he gently lifts Duber in one arm and climbs back down the tree. It got dicey for a minute, at least for me, Duber up there in the fork of the tree, but in the end, it turned out great for everyone. Duber didn't get eaten by fish and got safely down from the tree. That's all he wanted. In fairness, fish wouldn't have eaten Duber in a hundred years, but still, Duber got what he wanted. Fish got to chase a cat, which is what she wanted. I got to stop worrying, which is what I wanted. My wife got to be right, and to be fair, she's not the kind of person to want to be right all the time, but nevertheless, there it is. And Noah got to climb a tree, which, though he may not have known it before he came over that night, is exactly what he wanted to do. All in all, a happy, happy ending for everyone. In fact, so happy that we're trying it again tonight. I'll keep you posted. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. You know, animal stories can sure trigger memories for us if you've ever had a pet or known an animal that you loved or even one that you didn't. There's probably a story there that you can share with the people that you love. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Donna Ingham. You're going to hear from the story crafters. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Through the films that we see, the books that we love, the songs that we remember, the meals that we share, and of course through the telling of tales from teller to listener, sometimes over generations and generations. And talking about some of the ways in which these stories get down into our lives and the shape that they take is something that we love to do with friends here on the show. And I'm very, very pleased to be joined by a longtime friend of the Appleseed from his home in South Carolina, the great storyteller Tim Lowry. Tim, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, my great pleasure. <laughs> you know, there is stuff old. It's, it's, I've said this before. It's always such a pleasure to visit you in your office, which we're doing virtually here. And uh, there are so many things in your office that are worth a story. Some of them old, some of them new. We're going to talk about one that's 
nearly as old as you are, uh, something that has come into your life, right? Yes, yes. Um, a little man that has been promoted to high shelf. You know, <laughs> as things get older and get more fragile, they get put up higher and higher so they won't get bumped and knocked down and broken. <laughs> <laughs> and this, is a, this was a Christmas gift, wasn't it? Tell us about this. Tell us about this Limberjack doll. Yeah, when I was eight years old, which was, I'm not ashamed to say, 43 years ago, <laughs> I, uh, my parents took me to see an outdoor drama. And as I remember, it might have been the very first full-blown play that I'd ever gone to. I had seen like a church Christmas pageant and that kind of thing, but yeah. um, I was very taken with it. And it was a classic pioneer story in uh, Big Stone Gap, Virginia, called Trail of the Lonesome Pine, a coming-of-age story about a girl named June Tolliver, and it had all the great stuff in it. You know, there was a shotgun battle against, uh, between uh, feuding families, and there was a square dance scene, and there was a public hanging, and had all the good stuff in it. <laughs> and next door to the outdoor theater was the historic June Tolliver house, where the subject of this play had lived as a young girl. And inside that, there was a gift shop, and they had all kinds of interesting mountain toys from Appalachian culture. Well, the man who was in the gift shop that evening demonstrated a Limberjack doll for me, which is a hand-carved doll uh, made of flat pieces of wood, and all the uh, joints are put together with tiny little tacks. So he's hinged in his knees and his elbows, and sometimes they're hinged on their ankles. And you sit on a board and give the board a little bounce with your hand, and put him on top of the board and he'll jig around would probably be the best way to describe it. Uh, if you need a visual, like we do anything these days, just yeah. type it into your search engine and you'll find videos of Limberjacks and probably some entrepreneurial Appalachians who want to sell you one. <laughs> and, uh, and it's fun to see a Limberjack go. It's just as fun to hear one, isn't it? It's just, Oh yeah. Clack, yeah. Clack, yeah. Clack, I would call time. it a merry clacking. It, it all, it, you only listen to it for about three seconds and you'll suddenly find yourself singing stuff like old Dan Tucker was a fine old man. Right. You, you can't help yourself. And yeah. kids even now just absolutely go crazy for them. And uh, so I went crazy for that one when I was eight years old and my mom and dad on the sly purchased it. And it was under the Christmas tree a few months later on Christmas morning. And he became a good friend of mine. Uh, I named him Sam and, uh, played with him all the time, took him to school for show and tell. And then that summer, so I got him for Christmas when I was eight years old. And the following summer, when the county fair came around, there were all kinds of contests. There was bubble, go, bubble gum blowing contest and a hula hooping <laughs> contest and a pie eating contest. But there was a doll contest. Hmm. And girls were uh, encouraged to bring the most unusual doll they had. And there was going to be a judge and the judge was going to select the most unusual doll out of all the entries. Well, I saw an opportunity to distinguish myself. So I took my limberjack named Sam, Dancing Sam, to the doll contest. And all the other girls had, you know, dolls with fancy hair. And uh, my sister entered the contest. She had a doll that was a, a replica of the little children, the little girl on a Campbell soup label. It was oh, a good heavens. Soup wow. doll. Yeah, man. He entered her Campbell soup doll, and I had my doll. Well, when the judge came by, uh, he wasn't particularly impressed, and I said, "Let me show you what it does." And I plopped down in a straight back chair, 
and stuck the little board under my thigh and started banging that board. And, and he started dancing around. And he said, well, and you could see him getting really nervous. And finally, he said, well, girls, I hate to tell you this, but this young man right here has the most unusual doll I have ever seen. <laughs> and I won the blue ribbon. <laughs> In the doll contest. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and of course, now that doll has, has, as you say, high shelf status in the office. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He comes down at Christmas time and I let my kids play with him. I still take him to schools. And uh -huh. uh, I tell, I tell children, I say, if you take care of your favorite toy, you love it and take care of it. I said, then someday when you get to be a dad or even a grandpa, you can share that toy with your, your loved ones and with boys and girls. And they always think, really? And I say, really? Now that's not true of a video game, but anything else it would be true of. <laughs> yeah. You know, as, as you talk about the Limberjack dollars, you, as you began with uh, 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 relating the, the experience of going to uh, the theater, going to the production, right? It, it brought to mind so many of those productions all over the country that 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 might not survive outside of their own context, right? They're so tied to the place where they're performed, the place mm -hmm. where they were written, the people who performed them there, these expressions of love for the history of a particular place. That's a wonderful way to get around, isn't it? There are shows like that all over the country in one place or another that, again, tell the story of the place and its people. And, uh, and, and you can do a lot worse than to see one of those shows in its context, in the place where it was written is being performed, you know? That's true. That's true. And many of the cast members are locals of those communities. So, right. so they perform the story with a passion that you might not find if the story was performed anywhere else. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, it's such a pleasure to chat, not only about, you know, theater production, of course, but about the Limberjack doll, the award-winning Limberjack doll, even <laughs> in Tim Lowry's office. Tim, thanks so much for joining me here. You're most welcome. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with Tim Lowry, and we'll be sure to have him back. Up next, a story from the Story Crafters, the storytelling team of Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall. They'll tell a story called Two Peas in a Pod, and you won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. Up next, a story from Barry Marshall and Jerry Burns, the storytelling duo of the Story Crafters. This is a story called Two Peas in a Pod, and we're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. In our family, we like to tell stories about when we were little. Like the time when I was three. Exactly. Zachary was just like any other toddler. He was always getting into everything, and he loved his power of speech. And there were two phrases he liked to say above all others. The first phrase was, More! And he would say it any time he was fed his favorite food. That's when we'd hear, More! Or if we were playing some games, More! Or if we were reading him books, More! More! 
and the other favorite phrase was reserved for every other time. It doesn't feel good. Yes, things just didn't feel good to Zachary. Like going out. If we were to take Zachary somewhere, we would put him in the car seat. Then we would strap him in, and the moment we heard the click of the seat belt, we'd also hear... It doesn't feel good. The car seat didn't feel good, but that wasn't the only thing. Getting dressed. It doesn't feel good. In the morning, we would put on his favorite clothes, his softest cotton shirt. It doesn't feel good. So we change it to another soft cotton shirt. It doesn't feel good. The tag. It doesn't feel good. The seam. It doesn't feel good. The cuff or collar. It doesn't feel good. Zachary wore corduroy pants that winter because they were softer than anything else. But one day we put those pants on him and he said, It doesn't feel good. None of his corduroy pants felt good that winter, so we had to pack them up and pull out the flannel pants. We had enough clothes for three children because his whims changed from day to day, from week to week. And if getting dressed was that difficult... Imagine what it was like transitioning from summer to autumn. It doesn't feel good. All summer long, Zachary wore a diaper, or he wore shorts. He didn't wear much else. So when it was finally time for him to wear his first pair of pants... It doesn't feel good. It took two weeks before he'd keep his pants on, and then it was time to start with socks. It doesn't feel good. And if going from summer to autumn was this hard, well, you can only imagine what it was like when it was time for jackets, winter coats, snowsuits, mittens. It doesn't feel good. Even playful white snow, if any, should happen to sneak in that little tiny spot between his mitten and his coat and touch his bare skin. It doesn't feel good. We did everything we could to make things feel good to him. But still in all, we'd hear, It doesn't feel good. A friend advised us to make light of all of this and have fun. And so we made a list of all the things that didn't feel good. And so the next time we heard, It doesn't feel good. We would go running up to the list and add that item to it. That list is several pages long. But it wasn't until one late winter day when we understood why things didn't feel good. Every afternoon, Zachary had a nap, and we would go upstairs, and we would do the same go-to-sleep ritual as we did at night. We would go upstairs, lay down on the bed, and I would read him stories. But to make nap time special, we didn't tuck ourselves under the blanket. Instead, for fun, we would lay down on top of the blanket, and we both enjoyed that. Now, on that winter day, we went up for a nap. Zach lay on one pillow and I lay down on the other. I pulled out a book that we were reading, and I opened it up, and I started to read a story. I only had time to say, once upon a time before I heard, It doesn't feel good. Well, I looked at him to see what could possibly not feel good. I hadn't changed his clothes or anything, but he was pointing up to his head. Oh, is it the pillow, honey? Uh-huh. Oh. Well, let's see if this helps. So he sat up, and I flipped the pillow over. I said, try it now. And so he lay down. I picked up the book, and I started to read it again. 
but I didn't even get to say the whole once upon a time before. It doesn't feel good. Oh dear, honey. Um, let me see what else I can do. Oh, I know. And so I traded pillows with him. He lay down on my pillow. I lay down on his, and I started to read. I actually got through a whole sentence before. It doesn't feel good. Oh, sweetie, I'm sorry that didn't feel good. Well, how about if we try it this way? And I took the pillow that he was laying on and I folded it in half. See now, it's nice and fluffy. He smiled and he laid down on that pillow. And I actually got through the whole first paragraph. It doesn't feel good. Still? Oh dear, I'm sorry you're so uncomfortable. Let me think. And then I reached back into the archives of mother wisdom that must be somewhere in the library of my brain. And I said, I know. I gave him the pillow that I had been using, so now he had two. Try that, Zachary. He laid down there, he smiled, and he beamed. And I thought, surely the problem's solved now. And I got back to the book. I started to read, and he started to squirm. It doesn't feel good. Well, I sat up. I put the book down, and I looked at him. And I wondered, well... Maybe this was a day when pillows just weren't right for Zachary. Maybe what he needed today was no pillow at all. I took both pillows away. And that's when I noticed something. The top sheet was sticking out from the blanket and the corner was folded over, making a crease. Well, I figured I'd give it a try. I unfolded the corner, I smoothed the crease, I put down his original pillow, and I motioned for him to lay down. Well, he put his head on the pillow... He smiled at me as if I'd just given him a wonderful birthday present. And then I started to read. I got through that story. I got through three more books before Zachary fell asleep. Well, I tiptoed out of the room, and I went downstairs, and I told Barry that I understood why things just didn't feel good to Zachary, because fairy tales do come true. And Zachary was just like the princess and the pea. You know, I'm not the only one who says this doesn't feel good, because every day in the morning my mom wakes up, she puts on a dress, a shirt, or whatever she's wearing that day, and she says this doesn't feel good, and so she throws it off. She puts on another, and another, and another, and another, and finally, after the 500th dress, she puts something on, and she says this does feel good, and she walks out of the room, and she leaves me standing there, looking around at piles of clothes on the dresser, the lamp, and the bed. And I guess that means my mom and I are two peas in a pod. Two Peas in a Pod, a story told for you by the story crafters, Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall. Up next, a story called The Meandering Melon from Donna Ingham, a storyteller from Texas who has been named the biggest liar in Austin, Texas, seven times, and the biggest liar in all of Texas, three times. Those are tall tale contests. In any case, you never know what to expect in a Donna Ingham story. Here's The Meandering Melon on the Appleseed. Up there in Terry County, my daddy liked to grow things. He did. He raised livestock, of course, cattle, 
Horses, bird dogs, guinea fowl, you name it, he'd try it. For crops, he raised cotton on the back 40 and alfalfa down in the draw. And every year, he had a big garden. There by the house, he'd plant tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers. And out in the field, he'd plant quarter-mile rows of field corn and black-eyed peas and string beans. That was in the spring. In the fall, he'd plant turnips. Every year, my daddy got his picture in the Brownfield News and Terry County Herald holding the longest cucumber or the biggest turnip. And one spring, he decided to plant some watermelons in between the corn rows. And not just any watermelons either. No, sir. He planted black diamond watermelons, the ones that are dark green on the outside and ruby red on the inside. Big-hearted watermelons they are. Oh, they are good. Well, your black diamonds grow big anyway, but this one particular melon got to growing bigger and bigger and bigger until pretty soon it was pushing out beyond the cornrows. It uprooted about a quarter acre or so. It got too big for Daddy to load in the back of the pickup and take into town to have his picture made with it. So he just called the editor of the newspaper and said, You're going to have to come out here this year, boys. I've got something you've got to see. And they did. So there stood my daddy with his hand up on that watermelon. Oh, it was way taller than he was, and my daddy was five foot nine with his boots off. Then my stepmother got to thinking about what it was she wanted to take to the county fair that year in the way of canned goods. She didn't enter the baked goods, but she did love to can. Her corn relish had won the blue ribbon just the year before. Well, she got to thinking about those watermelons, and she had a real good recipe for watermelon preserves. So she decided to try her hand at that. She went up to the field to look over the crop, and naturally her eye fell upon that great big old melon that Daddy had had his picture made with. She said to herself, I wonder if that melon is any good. I reckon I'd better plug it and find out. Now, she had an eight-inch butcher knife with her, and she began to cut through the rind in a triangle shape like any good plugger does. But I'm telling you, the rind was so thick that when she pulled that plug out, it was all rind. There wasn't any melon meat on it. So she stuck her hand in through the plug hole, clear up to her shoulder, but still all she could feel was rind. Well, that provoked her some, and she took that butcher knife and kept hacking away at the plug hole until, before long, it was big enough she could step inside, aiming to get to the heart of that watermelon. You know... I think everything would have been all right if there hadn't been just a little slope to that field. But there already being some strain on the vine there, what with that big old melon on it, when my stepmother added her weight to it, it was just too much for that little old bitty stem, and it just popped right off. The next thing she knew, she was tumbling head over heels over head over heels inside the watermelon as it rolled down the slope out of the corn patch and 
onto the county road, taking out about a half a mile of fence posts as it went. And Daddy was over standing by the barn when he looked up and saw his melon rolling by. And he could hear his wife's voice from inside hollering, The heart! The heart! Well, he thought she was having a heart attack, so he jumped in his pickup, pushing the case of cannon jars he'd bought that morning at the Piggly Wiggly over to one side, and got in behind the melon. The county road made a little banking turn there as it came into town, and it just kicked that watermelon over onto Highway 82, so now it was on its way to Lubbock by way of Meadow, Ropesville, and Wolferth. The melon was rolling right down the middle of the highway forcing cars and pickups and 18-wheelers off into the bar ditch. It was mowing down mailboxes and burma-shave signs. Daddy was doing his best to keep up. Meanwhile, police cars and ambulances and fire trucks were falling in behind him. There was even a traffic helicopter flying overhead. All Daddy had to do to get up to the minute reports was just turn on the radio. The runaway melon is approaching Lubbock at a very high rate of speed. It is headed right for the South Plains Fairgrounds. The midway has been evacuated, and the exhibits area is on high alert. Lucky for everyone concerned, the melon didn't quite negotiate a sharp curve in the highway going into Lubbock, and it bounced off into McKenzie Park, right in the middle of Prairie Dog Town and no animals were hurt in this part of the story. There it was, rolling across all those prairie dog holes, and they must have acted just like hundreds of little speed bumps, because they sure enough did start to slow that melon down. So by the time it bounced on over to the South Plains Fairgrounds, it rolled to a stop. Just as docile as you please, right in front of the food exhibits building. Daddy came to a screeching halt in the pickup and bailed out, still thinking his wife was having a heart attack. Are you all right, sweet thing? Do you need CPR? Well, she came climbing out of that melon all red in the face and spitting seeds. No, I'm all right, she said. I just wish I had my cannon jars because I don't think I'm going to have time to get my preserves made and entered in the county fair. Not to worry, Daddy said. I've got a case of jars right here in the pickup. All you need to do is scoop out some of the heart of that watermelon and stir it up in those jars. You don't even need to add sugar. You know how sweet those black diamonds are. You'll win a blue ribbon for sure. She pulled herself up to her full height, brushed herself off as best she could, and did exactly what he said. And by doggies, she did win another blue ribbon. And I think the melon would have won a blue ribbon too if it hadn't had so many miles on it. 
The Meandering Melon, told for you by the Texas storyteller Donna Ingham. Such a pleasure to bring you that story. And we're going to wrap up today with a story from Big Joe Pagliuca. This is a story that is growing in popularity. It started out in the Appalachian hollers, the story of the mysterious hairy man that lives in the woods. And we're happy to bring it to you, a story told for you by Big Joe Pagliuca, here on The Appleseed. This is the story of Willie and the Hairy Man. Once upon a time, there was a town. And in the town, strange things were happening. There were strange noises in the forest. There were great big footprints on the ground. Too big to be a bear, too big to be a wolf, too big to be anything anyone had ever seen. And somebody or something was breaking into the barns and eating all the food. Now no one knew what it was. No one could figure it out. In that town, there was a little boy named Willie. And Willie went over to his mama one day and he said, Mama... What's making all that noise? And she said, Oh, Willie, that is the hairy man. And Willie said, What's a hairy man? And his mother said, The hairy man, he's like a man, only he stands eight feet tall, and he has long, dark hair all over his body, and he has long, sharp claws, and ugly, spiky teeth, and eyes that are red like two coals of fire. And if you're not careful, Willie, he will eat you up. But she said, I have something to tell you that hardly anybody knows. All you have to do is play three tricks on the hairy man. Just three tricks. And if you could play three tricks on that hairy man, that hairy man has to disappear and leave you alone forever. So just remember, if you ever run into him, just try to play three tricks. And he said, okay, mama. And so the next day, Willie went out to pick berries off the berry bushes. And he was very concerned about what his mama said about the hairy man. So for protection, he took along his dog Rufus. Now Rufus was a big old dog with big jaws and big teeth. And he protected Willie. And so Willie and Rufus went out into the forest to pick berries. And as they were picking berries off the berry bushes, Rufus saw something in the woods and went chasing off after him. And Willie said, come back, come back, you stinky dog. But Rufus left and left Willie all by himself. Now Willie was picking berries off the berry bushes and he was getting into a dark part of the forest. All the trees hung together and it blocked out the sun and looked like it was almost nighttime even though it was the middle of the day. And as he was picking berries off the berry bushes he heard a strange noise behind him. And he turned around slowly and there behind him stood the hairy man. With all that hair, those long, sharp claws, those ugly teeth, and those red eyes. And he pointed his claw down at Willie, and he said to him, I'm going to eat you up. Now Willie was scared. He didn't know what to do. He tried to run, but his legs wouldn't let him. And he stood there very, very afraid. And the hairy man started to get closer and closer. And Willie didn't know what to do. But then he remembered what his mama said about the three tricks. And he thought, and he thought, and he thought, and he came up with a really good trick. He looked up at that hairy man, and he said to him, Nah, I'm not afraid of you. And the hairy man said, What? How come you're not afraid of me? So I'm not afraid of you, because you don't have any magic powers. And the hairy man said, Hey, I have plenty of magic powers. He said, No, you don't. So why, I bet you couldn't change into things. said, I bet you couldn't change yourself into a cow. 
And the hairy man said, no problem. And the hairy man went and changed into a cow. And then he went and he changed back. Willis said, yeah, that was pretty good. But you know what? I bet you couldn't change yourself into a big, tall giraffe. And the hairy man said, no problem. And the hairy man went and changed into a giraffe. And then he went and changed back. Willis said, yeah, well, that was pretty good. But you know what? I bet you couldn't change yourself into a great big elephant. And the hairy man said, that's easy. And the hairy man went and changed into an elephant. And then, and he changed back. Well, he said, yeah, well, changing into big things seems kind of easy for you. I bet you couldn't change yourself into something small. I bet you couldn't change yourself into a little tiny mouse. And the hairy man said, no problem. And the hairy man went and changed into a mouse. And before he could change back, Willie grabbed that hairy man by the tail, picked him up, put him in his bag, tied the bag up really tight, and threw it in the river. And when he did, he ran all the way back home. And when he got back home, he saw his mama. And he said, Mama, I did it. I did it. I tricked the hairy man. I tricked him. Not only that, I got rid of him. And she said, Oh, no, Willie. You might have tricked him once, but you didn't get rid of him. You still have to trick him two more times. And that hairy man's going to come back. And when he does, he's going to be even harder to trick than before. And Willie said, nah, I got rid of him. I'm never going to see that hairy man again. And he was so sure of that, that the next day when Willie went out, he didn't even take Rufus with him. He went down to the river, maybe to do a little fishing, do a little swimming, have a little fun. And he was walking down by the riverbank without a care in the world, having a good old time. But all of a sudden, he heard some deep breathing behind him. And he turned around slowly, and there behind him stood the hairy man. And the hairy man looked down at Willie and smiled a crooked smile. And Willie looked up and Willie said, Hey, how did you get out of the bag? And the hairy man said, That was easy. I just changed myself into the wind and I blew right out of the bag. And now I'm going to eat you up. Now, Willie didn't know what to do. He had to think of a second trick, and man, he had to think of one really quickly. And he needed some time. And he looked down. And he saw the hairy man's feet. And he saw the hairy man's toes were all twisted and curled. And he knew because those curly, twisty toes, he probably couldn't climb a tree too well. And that's how Willie decided to get away to think. And he grabbed hold of a tree, and he climbed up really high, climbed way up high to a top branch. But the hairy man looked up at him and said, Hey, that's okay. You gotta come down sometime. And when you do, I'm gonna eat you up. Now Willie knew he couldn't stay up in that tree forever, and the hairy man knew it too. In fact, the hairy man could have just changed into anything and went up and got him. But the hairy man was okay to just sit there and wait for him to come on down. But Willie had to think of a trick, and he thought, and he thought, and he thought, and he came up with a really good one. He looked down at that hairy man, and he said to him, Nah, I'm still not afraid of you. And the hairy man looked up and said, Hey, how come you're not afraid of me now? He said, I'm not afraid of you because you can't make things disappear. And the hairy man said, Hey, I can make the whole world disappear if I wanted to. He said, No, you couldn't. He said, Why, you see that rock over there? I bet you can't make that rock disappear and end up down by the river. And the hairy man stuck out his hand and the rock went and ended up by the river. 
Say, that was pretty good. But see that log over there? Bet you can't make that log disappear and end up down by the hills. And the hairy man stuck out his hand. The log went and ended up by the hills. And Willie said, yeah, that was okay. But see that plant over there? Bet you can't make that plant disappear and end up down by the swamp. And he stuck out his hand. And the plant went and ended up by the swamp. Well, now here comes the trick. Because Willie looked down at him. He said to him, yeah. Well, you see this tree that I'm sitting on right here? I bet you can't make this tree disappear and end up down by my house. And the hairy man said, no problem at all. And he stuck out his hand to make the tree disappear. Well, when he stuck out his hand to make the tree disappear, Willie grabbed hold of the tree really tight and he squeezed. And he squeezed tight to the tree. And the hairy man made the tree disappear. Willie disappeared right along with it ended up back at his house and he climbed back down he ran inside and he said to his mama 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 i did it i did it i tricked him two times all we gotta do is trick him one more time and she said oh willie no one's ever lived long enough to trick him three times before we have a good chance to get rid of him we have to think of a really good trick and so they sat there and they thought and they thought and they thought and they thought and willie came up with a really good trick and he said it to his mama and his mama thought it was a really good idea And she said, okay, Willie, if this trick's going to work, you have to go up into that attic and you have to not make a sound and stay perfectly quiet. And he said, okay, Mama. And so Willie went and climbed the old rickety ladder up to the attic. He got up there, he hid behind some old boxes and stayed perfectly quiet. And when he did, Willie's mom got to work. She went on over to the barn and she got a pig. And she took the pig and she wrapped the pig in the blanket. And she took the pig in the blanket and she put him in Willie's bed. And she waited and she waited and she waited. And after a while, she heard some grumbling outside and some rumbling. And she knew the hairy man was out there. And she looked out and she said, go away, hairy man, go away. And the hairy man said, I'm not leaving. Open the door. She said, no way. You can't get in here. I have locks all over the door. He said, I'll break through the locks. Now open the door. She said, no way. If you get in here, I'm going to light you on fire. He said, I'll blow out the fire. Now open the door. And even though they had a plan, Willie's mom was very nervous. And she went on over to the door and she undid all the locks and opened up the door. And when she did, there in the doorway stood the hairy man with all that hair, those long, sharp claws, those ugly teeth, and those red eyes. And he pointed his claw down at Willie's mom, and he said to her, I'm here to take your baby. She said, no way, hairy man. You're not getting him. You're not getting him at all. He said, give me your baby right now, because I'm going to eat him up. She said, no way, no how. You get out of here, you get out of here, and don't come back. He said, give me your baby right now, right now, because I'm going to eat him up. And then Willie's mom did the plan. She put up her hands. She looked right up at that hairy man, and she said to him, okay, okay, hairy man, I'll give you my baby. And the hairy man smiled an evil smile. But Willie's mom had that plan. And she went on over to Willie's bed, and she got that pig in the blanket and brought him on over to where that hairy man was. And she said, okay, hairy man, here you go. Here's my baby. 
And the hairy man took it and he smiled. And he laughed an evil laugh. <laughs> and he pulled down the blanket to eat Willie up. But when he did, he saw the pig. And the pig squealed right in that hairy man's face. And the hairy man said, Hey, what's this? What's this? She said, Well, hairy man, that is my pig. And his name is Baby. She said, I told you I was going to give you my baby, only I never told you which baby I was going to give you. The hairy man got so angry that he was tricked that he put that pig down and he ran off into the forest yelling and screaming and complaining. And all of a sudden there was a great big sound and the hairy man disappeared. And Willie came down and gave his mom a great big hug and Willie and his mom were very happy. And from that day on, there were no more sounds in the forest, no more footprints on the ground, and nobody was eating anything out of the barns. And that was all because of Willie and Willie's mom, who played three big tricks and tricked the hairy man. And that is the end. Big Joe Pagliuca. Wrapping up our episode today, such a pleasure to have you with us for tales from Donna Ingham, from the story crafters, from, of course, uh, at the top of the hour, Joel Ben Izzy, and more. Join us again on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.